Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, what a privilege it is to be gathered here on this day in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Father, we are resurrection people. And the truth is that for us who are in Christ, every day is the day of resurrection. Every day is life in light of resurrection. And yet it's good and it's needful that we have special times when we can gather and be especially reminded that we are such people, that we serve arisen, enthroned Lord and King. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in this time as we consider the significance of resurrection. Not merely the fact of it, not merely the evidence of it, Not merely resurrection is a matter of Christian orthodoxy, but what it means to be resurrection people. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear, hearts to discern, and minds that are renewed, minds that are transformed from glory unto glory, not just in this day, not just in this time, but according to the truth of our own resurrection in the Messiah, raised up in him, seated in the heavenly realm in him. Father, we commit this time to you. I pray for your grace in leading each one those who have walked with you for many years, those who perhaps even question whether they know you, those who are young in their journey of faith, meet each one according to his need, that each one would be built up in this life, this truth, this resurrection. It's in Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, Resurrection Sunday is probably not surprised at the idea of a resurrection sermon, but I've done many such resurrection sermons over the years, and today I wanted to deal with the subject in a little bit more of a practical way. Um, If you go back and you look at the sermons over the years, like I said, I've dealt with resurrection in terms of uh, you know, the mechanics of it, how do we think about it, the truth of it, the importance of it in, in a theological sense for the Christian faith. But I really want to talk about it in terms of 
our lives in light of resurrection. And this uh, kind of springs out of where we were last week in this idea of our overarching obligation to go to Jesus outside of the camp, to encounter him there and to abide with him in that place. What does that mean in the light of this idea of resurrection? Too often in, in the Christian church through the centuries, the preoccupation has been with the fact of resurrection and arguments among conservatives and liberals as to whether there could even be such a thing as the resurrection of Jesus. Does it even matter? Is it a peripheral thing? Um, often Christians who believe in the resurrection have focused simply on resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus as the proof of satisfaction, the proof that he made a satisfactory atonement for sin. And therefore, the resurrection simply is for us the promise that when we die, that we will go to heaven, that there is an eternal life awaiting our spirits. But I think far too often, and in my mind, tragically, we fail to think about really the import of resurrection and the full scope of it, why uh, Paul viewed it as absolutely critical to the Christian faith, not simply as the proof of atonement, but as something far more significant than that. Christians often don't think of resurrection in terms of the non-human creation. The fact that so much of our arguments and, and uh, you know, reasoning around resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, has been tied to who's saved, who isn't saved, how many. And we don't think of the resurrection in its cosmic scope. We don't think of that alter, uh, ultimate larger significance of it. But if we look at the scriptures, and I would argue Old Testament as well as New Testament, if Jesus came... Uh, in his person and work to fulfill the scriptures. And the apex or the focal point of that fulfillment is his resurrection. It leads us, and the Old Testament would affirm, that really, ultimately, God's purpose is about creational renewal, life out of death, a principle that begins in the garden and continues through the whole of the salvation history. God's intent is life out of death, not just for human beings, but for the whole creation. And a life out of death that isn't the resuscitation of a dead corpse a la Frankenstein's monster, but a new creation, transformation. Not the resuscitation or the polishing up of the former creation, but the inauguration and ultimately the, the ultimate filling out of a new creation the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth and Jesus himself. A paradigm shift, a transformation, a changing in the order of all things, a, renew, a renewing of the creation that involves a radical transformation, a reordering of it in its structures and its paradigms, all of its patterns, that's what is the idea of life out of death. And it was that 
really that, that began with the life of Jesus. We can say in many ways the resurrection simply brought to a climax the principle of life out of death that began with the incarnation. And all of Jesus' life and ministry was the confronting of the old creation with the patterns of the new creation embodied in Jesus himself. The conflicts with Israel were all centered in that. Jesus took to himself the right, the authority to interpret all things related to Israel and its life, its practices, its relationship with God, to take all of those things and interpret them in light of himself. And that was a threat to the status quo. Who do you think you are? He took the structures, the authorities that governed Israel, not just the ruling authorities, the people, but Torah, temple, sacrifice, priesthood. He took all of those governing authorities in Israel's life and he took the right to himself to interpret and understand them in light of himself. Who do you think you are to set aside Moses? Who do you think you are? to take authority away from the temple, authority away from the priesthood. And so the conflict that Jesus encountered when you read the Gospels is that it was effectively a new creation confronting the old creation, if you want to put it most simply. And as the new believers, after Jesus' resurrection, as the new believers went out into the world with this gospel, this good news of new creation, they found the same pushback even from the Gentiles. The authority structures, the ways of doing life, the ways of thinking about life, the ways of being human were confronted with this reality of an inaugurated new creational kingdom with a new kind of king, a new sort of lordship. And there was pushback pushback. And all of those ideas are at the center of this thing of going outside the camp. To meet Jesus where he is and abide with him in that place. And I wanted to flesh that out a little bit more than in terms of the practicalities of it, because going out to Jesus, put most simply, involves living according to the new paradigm of human existence that he inaugurated by his own death and resurrection. It's living a new kind of human life as a new kind of human being. And the only way that we can really even understand that is to understand the way it was, the way we were, and therefore what has come in the light of the Messiah himself. So I want to treat this just, and again, this is very practical. I'm not exegeting a particular text or whatever, but fleshing out some of these ideas in a practical way. And I want to just treat it in two regards. This idea of relationship with God. Old creation, new creation, going to Jesus outside of the camp. What does that mean? How should we think about that in terms of our relationship with God? or the relationship of human beings with God, not just us personally. And then secondly, what does that mean for this thing of faithfulness? What does it mean to be faithful? Christians all know that we're to be faithful, live a faithful life, be faithful to God. What does that really mean? And there's a reason that I treat them in this way, relationship with God, then faithfulness to God. 
because it really flows out in that way. Well, the place to start in this idea of relationship with God is how do human beings naturally, in our natural state, think about and do this thing called relationship with God? And if we start in Genesis and understand the fall, we recognize that the fundamental issue in the fall is not that we become bad people who do all sorts of bad things, although some do. The fundamental issue is the loss or the compromise, the vandalism of the essential humanness for which God created us. Alienation expressed in exile throughout all of the scriptures, this principle of alienation. What the fall did is establish human alienation from God, therefore from ourselves, since we are the image and likeness of God. The truth of us is in God. Alienation with respect to other people, alienation throughout the whole creation. Everything is set in a posture of independence, a posture of I versus you. That principle of alienation affects everything in the way we think, everything in the way we live, and it affects our relationship with God. So how do we naturally think about this thing of relationship with God? And I would argue this is how we think about all relationships. Uh, It's not just a Christian thing, even in the realm of religion, in the realm of human relationships. And the first thing is this premise, this unconscious, determinative premise of independence. Me and not me this principle of independence. What that means is that relationship is, and and I'm saying we consciously think about all of this, but I do want to exhort us to the extent that you don't think about how you think and you don't think about how you relate in the world, how your lives really operate. Think about these things and do business with them. Independence means that we view relationship as a matter of autonomous decision. We determine, there's me and there's not me, we determine to interact with, to relate to someone or something beyond ourselves. It's a choice, it's a volitional thing that originates with me. We perceive ourselves with respect to this thing called God, this being called God. We tend to perceive ourselves as distinct from God. Not just in that he's the creator, we're the creature, he's divine, we're not divine. But separated in our essential persons from him as well as separated spatially. The way we think about heaven is a place out there and that's where God is. I'm here, he's out there. And so there's a distinction between us and God, spatially and even in our persons. There's me and there's God. I'm here, he's out there. And yet there's something in us because we are the image and likeness of God. We have a kind of vague, often not well-defined sense of nearness to the divine. This is why we have human religion. We have a sense of the divine, and we have a sense of the capacity to interact with the divine. 
there's deity or divinity or spiritual powers or forces that are out there and they're not us, but we have some way to interact with them. A sense of their nearness and their accessibility. And maybe two extremes of that are pantheism on the one side where the whole creation itself is divine and on the other end, a more Epicurean idea in which the gods probably exist or deity probably exists, but it's out there and it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the lives we live. It has nothing to do with our daily decisions. God is out there, but he's not concerned with this world. That was very much the idea behind the deism of the Enlightenment period. Some of our founding fathers tended to be more deist in that regard. That God created the world, established the physical laws and principles that govern it, and then now God has left it to us to run the world. He doesn't get involved in the details of life. This idea of independence is fundamental to the way we relate to God, even if we don't think about it. And that affects then the way we understand this idea of intimacy. For us in our natural selves, intimacy is a matter of managed distance. There's me and there's not me. And so what we think of, the way we understand and relate to this idea of of intimacy, whatever, however we define it in a dictionary sense, the way we do this thing called intimacy is managed distance. It's a practical closeness. Again, there's relationships become a matter of individual autonomous decision. And so intimacy is a matter of volition. It's a choice And it's always limited. It always preserves the self's essential independence. Whatever our intimacy, whatever, and I'm talking about relational intimacy in all regards, our closeness with people, even our closeness with God, it always preserves to us our essential independence. And it's always limited by that insistence on preserving our independence. I'll get so close, but no closer. Intimacy is managed distance. And then the third principle that governs our relationships that flows out of those two is the principle of reciprocity. Independence, intimacy is managed distance, and then reciprocity. And that's the idea that relationships are utilitarian transactions. Utilitarian transactions. Reciprocity. And that governs all of our relationships, human, but also our relationship with God as we naturally understand it. Reciprocity is the expectation that in everything I give, I'll receive something. There's a give and a take, a give and a take. And much of Christian theology through the centuries has wrestled with this very thing. What do we do and what does God do? What's our part? What's his part? And there's an intrinsic 
something in us that this is the way relationships work. It's the way our marriages work. It's the way our friendships work. It's the way business relationships work. It's the way um, our, our parenting works. Everything has the expectation of return, return on investment. And if you think that's not the case, what how do we respond when life doesn't look the way we expect it to? There's some sort of a downturn or something. that God, how could you do this to me? I've been faithful. I've given my money. I've been a Christian since I was a kid. I went to Bible college. I'm obedient, whatever it happens to be. How could you do this to me? Reciprocity. It's the basis of idolatry, which is the fundamental way to express man in his fallenness. That's the fundamental issue of our fallenness. If sin has to do with deviation from the truth of who we are, we can say that the fundamental manifestation of that is idolatry. Devotion to an entity, real or imagined, but devotion to an entity that I believe will be of personal usefulness and benefit. Idols are served because they're perceived as beneficial. In the context in Isaiah where God is speaking of the fact that Israel needs to look to him to find the resolution of its covenantal quandary and ultimately the desolation, the exile that are coming. And God says, stop looking around you, look to me. And he even accuses them of what's gotten them in this predicament. Here's what he says. This is in Isaiah 44. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them empty. Not just their idols, they are empty. They are futile. The effort, the thinking, the motivation, the outcome, it's all futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. They're not even made ashamed. They can't even see how shameful and ridiculous and absurd this is. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Rhetorical question. Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves. The ones who form these idols, they're just men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool. He makes the tool. The man makes the tool to make the idol. And then he works over the coals, fashioning it with hammers, working with his strong arm. But he gets hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink any water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man. Man who gets tired and hungry and has to drink and has to rest. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak, raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. 
And he makes a fire to bake bread and he takes and he makes a God and he worships it and he makes a graven image and falls down before of it. Half of this wood he burns in the fire to cook his food, to warm himself. With the other half of it, he makes a God for himself and falls down before it and worships. And he says, deliver me for you are my God. All of our idols, whether idols in our mind, we say, well, I'm not, you know, I don't have this problem of idolatry because I don't carve little statues or I don't put up votive candles or, you know, um, do all of kind of the religious stuff that you associate with Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever. So I'm not an idolater. Calvin said rightly, the human mind is a perpetual idol factory. And we are always looking to lay hold of and to endear ourselves to and to entrust ourselves to that which we think will satisfy, that which we think will deliver, that which we think will fulfill. Idolatry is the most basic expression of this principle of reciprocity that that derives from this alienation between us and God. Now there's God and me, and the relationship is defined by reciprocity. And we make God into an idol in that way. This is how we even end up with religion as magic. Not magic sleight of hand, but the manipulation of spiritual powers and forces to achieve a desired outcome. All human religion is magic. It's using resources, again, perceived or real, using resources available to us to manipulate powers out there to be amenable to us, to be receptive to us, to benefit us. All religion is that. And I would argue that a lot of what we call the Christian religion is just that. It is just that. Man's attempt to manipulate transcendent powers to his own advantage. God, how could you do this to me? Why doesn't it look this way? Why isn't it that way? How could it, this happen? So the way we naturally relate to God is according to these principles of independence, intimacy as a kind of managed and preserved distance, and also this principle of reciprocity. Well, what has happened in the Messiah to transform that? How should we understand relationship with God? What does it look like to go out to Jesus outside the camp? We saw in Hebrews that really refers to setting aside and, and, and walking from all of the ways of thinking and being and doing life, even in relation to God. Jewishness, in the case for these Hebrews, and encountering Christ where he is and abiding with him in that place. What does relationship with God look like in the light of Christ? Well, Jesus put it best, and he did it in many ways, but in the upper room, as he was explaining to his disciples the significance of what was coming the next day, what it would mean for them and for the world, he wanted them to understand that what this will mean is I in you, you in me. 
When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, he wasn't saying, I'm making a place up in heaven for you so that when you die, you'll have a room in my house or your own mansion or whatever it is. If you read down through that context in chapter 14, the place that he's going to prepare is the ingathering of people into the life of the Father and the Son. We will come. I will not leave you as orphans. We will come to you. And the place that I make for you is that you will be in me and I will be in you as I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You see, if, if, if what has come in the Messiah is that we have been taken up in God himself, that destroys our notions of independence. It destroys the issue of intimacy as managed distance. It destroys the principle of reciprocity. This new relationship that has been accomplished in Jesus, the true relationship that God intended and has now secured in relation to human beings is a relationship of essential oneness. Essential oneness. Oh, you're saying we're divine. No, I'm not saying that. But Peter does say we have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world, right? Raised up in Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenly places in him. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He said, you Ephesians, you believers, I want you to really understand what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that has raised you up from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul's talking about his gospel that he proclaims and the significance of it. He says, we maintain that one died, therefore all died. And and all died in order that those who live in him might no longer live in the way they did before but live unto God in a new way. And so we no longer regard any man according to the flesh. We don't think about anything in the way we did before. If any man is in Christ, new creation. It is a relationship of essential oneness in which we individually and collectively are the dwelling of God in the spirit. It's one of the great tragedies, I think, of the common evangelical preoccupation with a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. I mean, maybe someday a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, but all it is is a symbol of Israel's continuing unbelief if they were to pull it off. We are the temple of the living God. Christ is the chief cornerstone. There is no more building where God's going to dwell or have any business with. We are the dwelling of God in the spirit. So it is a relationship defined by unlimited and unqualified intimacy. It's not managed distance. It's not God's out there and I'm here and I can cry out to him when I need something. Paul doesn't deal with it in that way. When he deals with all of the dimensions of life for the Christian, he says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know what is true? Don't you know that we are the dwelling of God in the spirit? 
He's not out there in a place called heaven waiting for us to cry out to him when we want something or need something. All that we are, all that we have, all that we do, all that we think is bound up in his own life and mind. And that's both a a good thing and a negative thing. Why would we join Christ to our idols, right? It is a relationship of unqualified intimacy, knowing God, communing with God in the inner man. But it is also, therefore, a relationship of absolute dependence. All that we have, all that we are, all that we do, derives from God himself. The Christian life, this relationship with God, is one of utter dependence, open-handed submission, humility, and gratitude. See, it undoes this thing of reciprocity. I'm going to do my part. Now I expect God's going to do his part. I've been faithful. I've done this. Here's my religious credentials. Now, you know, how come it doesn't go well for me? How come it's not going well for me? I'll scratch God's back so he'll scratch my back. That's how relationships work, don't they? We scratch each other's backs in order to get our back scratched. This is a one-dimensional, one-directional relationship. God gives and we receive. It's a relationship, ultimately, of love, but the love of children to a father. Little children don't think they bring anything to the relationship. They know that this is a one-sided thing. They take and the father gives, right? The parents give, the children take. They're not contributing anything to the situation. Their existence, their well-being, their provision flow from the father to the child. And that's true of us. The climactic statement at the end of Isaiah, after all of God saying, I am he, I am the Holy One of Israel, I will do it, stop looking around, trust me, I am he, I am he. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you're going to build for me? Where's my dwelling place to be? What are you going to do for me? Has not my hand made all these things and thus they came into being? You want me to take notice of you. You want me to turn my gaze on you favorably. Well, this is the one for whom I will turn my gaze in favor. The one who is humble and broken in spirit and trembles at my word. What word? I am he. I will do it. Trust me. Walk with me. Depend on me. Receive from me. It's a unilateral relationship. What we give to God is Trust, devotion, an open hand, receptivity, gratitude, humble dependence. We don't do anything for him. And to the extent that we think we do, we're idolaters who are lying against the truth. It's a relationship of authentic love. And so this present manifestation of new creation, as I say all the time, where is new creation? If Jesus' resurrection means new creation, where is it? It exists in the human beings who are sharers in him. Well, what does that look like? In our bodies? No, none of us are going to say new creation pertains to our bodies. Maybe when you're young you can say that, but you'll soon change your tune. 
New creation doesn't pertain to your present bodies. It's a renewing of the mind. It's a renewing of the mind. A renewed mind that now, by the Spirit, in a progressive way, is causing us to have and to grow in, be nourished in the mind of Christ. Looking at life in a new way, looking at ourselves in a new way, looking at all things with a different mind. Not just a more religious old mind, not just a more moral old mind, a new mind. Transformed by the renewing of our minds. Viewing all of life through the reality that we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The resurrected Messiah is our life. We say that, we read it, but do we really believe it? Do we really live it out? Do we really believe in practice as a forefront of our thinking and and the orientation of our life what Paul said, I died, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. Christ is my life. Not just he's my life in the sense that he's the most important thing to me, but that he is life. And my life is sharing in his life. That we individually, but more importantly, collectively, are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do we really think that way? God himself is the essence and the goal of human existence. The fall compromised that conviction. It it, it broke that sense of things and set man out on his own to, to find his own way independent of God. But the truth is God himself is the very essence of human existence and he is the goal of human existence. To be authentically, truly, consummately human is to know him and be conformed to him. He is the telos, he is the goal, the end point of human existence. Or else Jesus isn't the true man, because that's the kind of a person that he was. Rethinking relationship with God and then rethinking faithfulness. Okay, if relationship with God is the foundation, then we understand faithfulness in the light of that. Faithfulness is us being conformed in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, in our actions, our conforming of ourselves or being conformed to the truth of our actual relationship with God. Faithfulness is conforming to that truth. And to be, this relationship with God is ordered and, and ordained by God unto a certain purpose. What is the purpose of God's creating human beings and being in this relationship of I and you, you and me? What is the point of that? Where is that going? Why does that matter? What is that all about? My point is this, being faithful is not just being, to that, being faithful to that truth or conforming to that truth in an abstract way, but understanding the point and the goal, the significance, the purpose of that relationship and ordering ourselves along that trajectory. That's what it looks like to be faithful, to, if you will, be doing what God is doing, to walk in the spirit. What is God doing? What is this thing about life in Christ all about? Where is it going? What's the purpose of it? To be conformed to that is what it is to be faithful. 
And it pertains in three main areas. The first thing is in our own personal sonship, the inward conformity of our persons to the truth of this reality of lives hidden with Christ in God. Believing, nurturing, living out this intimacy that I've been talking about. There is nothing secular. There's not church and job. There's not home and family and and Christian faith. It's not focus on the family. It's not focus on the church, per se, in the way that we think about it. There is no secular, there is no private, there is no independent aspect of the Christian life. There is life in the Messiah, raised up, seated in the heavenly realm in him. There is no secular and sacred, there is no private, there is no personal in the way that we have always known it and thought about it. Faithfulness is conforming to our sonship, this living union with God in Christ. That's the sense in which faithfulness is a matter of godliness. Godliness simply means God-likeness. Well, what does God-likeness look like? It looks like Christ-likeness. Conforming, seeking further, deeper, ever-growing conformity to Christ himself is what godliness is all about. It's about a principle of inward renewal and transformation. That's what it's fundamentally about. Our progressive conformity to Jesus, the true son. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens through conscious, deliberate, and directed discipline. Yes, it's true that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same likeness, the likeness of Christ from glory to glory. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't wake up one day bearing the fragrance of Christ. There's an intentionality, there's a purposefulness, there's a persevering in it, there's a pursuit. Faithfulness looks like us living out this reality of sonship. But it also then secondly implicates this thing called the church. As God's dwelling, as individually, we are, Peter says, as living stones now joined to the living stone, we are built into a spiritual house to be a spiritual sanctuary. And in that way, we offer living sacrifices to God. Right? First Peter 2. Living stones individually to be built into a house. In that way, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Relationships in the church are not just determined by God, but they're determined by God to reflect the relationship within the Godhead itself. The I and you, you and me dynamic, right? Father, Son, Spirit. The truth of each member of the Trinity is in the others. The Father is the Father, but not only in relation to the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit's the Spirit only in relation to the Father and the Son. That perichoretic, interdependent 
relationship that exists in the Godhead. That's what God is reproducing in this thing called his spiritual house. And that means that we have to recognize, not theologically just, but live into the church as an organism rather than an organization. And I'm not going to belabor all of this and develop it all out today. I mean, some of these things we've talked about before. But we cannot be faithful to this reality of resurrection if we don't get it right in the church. That's my point. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. And that means that part of it also is that we have to perceive rightly, recognize, embrace, and even celebrate differences in the body of Christ. Just as the hand is not the foot, is not the eye, is not the ear, and yet all of them work symbiotically to make this thing called the body, so it is, Paul says, in Christ's body. That's why Paul emphasizes the, the laboring, the pursuing, the striving to, to, to preserve and to nourish the unity of the body. What is that unity? Well, it's our confession. It's our denomination. It's our tradition. No, it's the unity of the faith. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one Christ, one God and Father. Unity in the spirit, not the uniformity of doctrine and practice. To understand the church as an organism means that we've got to deal rightly with this thing called the differences that exist amongst us and in the larger body of Christ. Those things have to be worked out in the context of understanding the difference between unity and uniformity, and also that those distinctions are a matter of harmony and not hierarchy. We're so used to thinking of the church hierarchically. And particularly as they become businesses, you look at a church's organizational chart, you know, and it looks like a, a, a Fortune 500 company, right? The church is not hierarchical. Different gifts, different functions, all working in harmony. And as we've seen over and over again, and Jesus makes much of this in the upper room, the church's witness to the truth, the church's gospel in the world, if you will, depends utterly on the church rightly discerning itself and being itself in truth. When you are one, as the Father and I are one, as I am in you, you are in me, so now you are in one another. When the church operates in that way as an organism, then the world will know and understand that the Father sent me. Only in that way. I don't care how many tracts you pass out. I don't care what your individual personal life looks like. It's through the church being the church that the gospel is made known to the world. That's what Jesus was saying. So faithfulness with respect to our personal lives with God, faithfulness in the church, and then lastly, faithfulness in the world. What does it look like for us to be faithful with respect to the unbelieving world, the wider world? Well, it's got to begin with us really discerning God's intent for his creation. How can we be faithful with respect to the creation if we don't understand God's intent for it? For many Christians, it's, you know, this this is an orbiting septic tank that God's going to destroy and it's going away anyway. So, you know, to hell with it. Let's just go hide and wait for the rapture, right? 
it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so why do we care? Well, that's based on a view of the purpose of creation, what God is doing with his creation. Well, we ought to know, the scripture teaches us, that God's purpose, his intent for the creation, is renewal, not destruction. And it is cosmic, not simply human. We are to recognize God's intent for the wider creation, and we are to be, if we're faithful, we are servants of that work. We are servants of what God is, his intent is in the world. And we have to understand how Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, has fulfilled that intent in principle and what it looks like for now, now for God to be doing this work in and through his church. What it means to proclaim the lordship of Christ. What it means that all authority in heaven and earth is his. How it is that actually the gospel has political, societal, cultural implications and imposes obligations in those realms. See, we can't just go hide in our buildings and wait for the rapture and be faithful. But is the church a political action committee? You see, we got to think about these things. What is God's intent for the creation? How has Jesus accomplished that in substance? And what is our role as Jesus in the world with respect to God's design for the creation? And I'm not so much giving you answers as saying these are things that we have to think about. It's all grounded in what is it for us now to be rightly related to God and what does it look like now to be faithful in light of this reality of I and you, you and me. New creation. So abiding with Jesus then outside the camp means living out the realities of his death and resurrection. Living out the reality and the truth of new creation. That's what it is to go out to Jesus outside the camp. So very quickly, I want to just ask some questions. And my point is not to drive a dagger into anybody's heart or put a guilt trip on anybody, but just to kind of pull this together. Here's some questions to think about. And, if, and I'd like you to write these down because I don't want it to just do the Play-Doh thing, you know, and squeeze in one ear and go out the other. And you forget an hour from now what even you heard. If you can't get them all written down, you can contact me and I'll give them to you. These are not, you know, the sum and substance. But these are some things to think about related to, again, these issues of our personal intimacy with God, what it is to be rightly related to him in relation to the church and then the world. So my first question is this. What is your involvement with the scriptures? Very basic Not so much how often do you read the scriptures, but how. How often is is important. If you you say, well, all that matters is how I read them, not whether it's once every year or five years or whatever. But more than how often, how. How are you involved with the scriptures? And by that, I mean, what is your motivation, your approach, your orientation, your goal in interacting with the scriptures? Is it to do your daily devotional? Is it to read through the Bible in a year? Is it to learn everything the Bible says about this doctrine? 
what, what is it that draws you to the scriptures? How do you read them? How do you think about them? How do you approach them? What's your orientation? What's your goal? The second question is, what about your prayer life? What things provoke your prayers and what do you seek in prayer? And that obviously isn't going to just be one single answer. But there, there are things, there's ways of thinking and understanding that, that motivate our prayer, our prayer life. There are things that draw prayer out of us. There are reasons that we pray. What provokes our prayers and, and what do we seek in our prayers? Because if we're praying, we have some sort of sense of something that we're looking for or that we're seeking. Some reason for going to God in prayer. What provokes our prayers and what do we seek in prayer? To add to that a little bit, to use Paul's way of putting it, what does it mean for us to devote ourselves to prayer? Repeatedly, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. What does that mean? And how does that parallel with the idea of Paul saying that we are to pray without ceasing? What does it mean to be devoted to to prayer, to pray without ceasing, in light of the things we've talked about today? The third question, then, is what general perspective and sense of yourself governs your daily life? I'm not talking about what you say in a Sunday school class or what you think theologically or what you've been taught to say, but in terms of the actual walking out of your days, step by step, the living out of your days, what perspective and sense of yourself governs your daily life? Do you really find yourself encountering the moment-by-moment circumstances of life from the perspective that Paul keeps stressing, you died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God? Is that a theological concept that hangs out there in space, but it doesn't meet us in our day-to-day circumstances? That's what I'm getting at. How do you think about yourself? How do you understand your life as a Christian? And how does that, in a sense, affect the way that you meet the circumstances of life? The fourth question then gets into this issue of the church, and here's the question. What is your relationship with this body of believers? Everybody here has some connection with this church, right? And it doesn't have to be this body, but what is your connection with the body of believers? What is your relationship with Christ's church? Does it reflect and does it express the truth that Christians are members of one another? Do we go to church? Do we do church? Do we have friends at church? Do we do occasions associated with church? Do we relate to this thing called Christ Church with the understanding, not just understanding, but the actual living out of this reality of being members of one another. 
I in you, you in me. The truth of me is in you. The truth of you is in me. These are very practical things, and I hope they're things that we'll do business with. What really is our ongoing true relationship with the church? Do we really live with the, with the reality? Do we live into the truth that there is no independent Christian life? There isn't. God isn't saving a bunch of individuals to go to heaven. He's forming a human organism that is the fullness of his son, in which he has his own habitation. It's an organic organism thing. It's not a bunch of individual people going off to their own individual destiny in heaven when they die. Do we really live with the understanding that there is no independent Christian life? Related to the same thing of life in the church, how do you perceive your spiritual gifting and the purpose God has for you? You might say, well, I've never thought about my spiritual gifts. Or I can't use my spiritual gift because you don't have a parking ministry or a latte bar or whatever it happens to be. What do you understand about your spiritual gifting and how are you using your spiritual gifting? I'm not talking about activities in the church. Long before the church had activities, people were using their gifts. Because the gifts are endowments from the Spirit for the good of the other. See, part of this independence, I and you thing, is that we view the gifts as a way to distinguish ourselves. Here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's what I bring to bear. The gifts have nothing to do with us. They are endowments of the Spirit through us to the other. And all that we need to use our spiritual gifts is to be intimately connected with and care about other believers. It has nothing to do with programs in the church. Spiritual gifts have nothing to do with programs. They have nothing to do with Sunday school or this or that. They don't even have anything to do with the pulpit. They have to do with the endowments of the spirit for the sake of the good of the whole, the building up of the whole into the likeness of Christ. That's what the gifts are about. What do we understand our gifting to be and what are we doing about that in relation to the body of Christ? There's the question. And then the last couple of questions pertain to the wider world. And here's the question. Do people ever ask you about your faith? I'm not talking about you bringing it up, but Peter says, always be ready to give an answer. The reason for the hope that lies in you. Do people ever ask you about your faith? Not because you sit down and talk with them and try to evangelize them or whatever, but just in their interaction with you. Does their interaction with you cause them to see something or question something or be curious about something where they ask you the reason for the hope that lies in you. And then lastly, what gospel do you think people hear from the message of your life? People who are observing you, what gospel, what good news do you think they hear? What's their takeaway? Again, I'm not talking about gospel conversations where you sit down and try to evangelize. I'm saying, 
what, when they hear the message of your life, when they observe you, what gospel are they taking from you? What is their sense? What fragrance are we bearing in the world? And again, these questions aren't meant to intimidate. They're not meant to induce guilt. But they are important in considering our faithfulness. And that doesn't mean that we're not works in progress. We are. We can't take these things in an absolute way and say, oh, I'm failing completely, completely, completely. But what we can say is what Paul said, which is that I haven't already arrived. I haven't already been made perfect, but I do press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I forget what's behind I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, all who are mature should think in that way. See, this doesn't give us an excuse, but it also doesn't nail us in a box and say, you're done. If if our relationship with God is what I've been talking about, then we have no excuse. We have every reason, every hope, every encouragement to press on. If we come together and we say, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, well, I would say, who cares? Why does it matter? We need to press on. And that pursuit is our seeking to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is is a transformation, an inner renewal work that yields itself in an entire devotion Not just changed behavior, but an entirely different way of doing this thing called human life. I just want to close with this quote from Thomas Torrance. And he's actually drawing from Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if you know that passage, uh, Paul talks about do not be stop. He actually says stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. Be being transformed. Be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. In order that through that renewal, you will be able to prove out, to assay and determine and prove out what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. In other words, you will bind yourself to the mind of God. You will see things the way he does. And here's what what Torrance says. He says, notice the distinctive way in which Paul interrelated the renewing of the mind with the offering of the body as a living sacrifice and with rational worship. Thinking worship, true worship, informed worship. It is not with disembodied minds that we have to do here, but with the created unity of mind and body in which the human self is constituted. While stress may be laid, emphasis laid on the transformation of the mind and its assimilation to Christ, it is the whole human self that is ultimately involved. The transformation the apostle called for is so deep that it evokes out of the rational self an instinctive judgment, instinctive judgment about what is good, acceptable, perfect before God which is to say, in the way I have been expressing it, we are called to be transformed in such a profound way that there develops within the very depths of our rational being a theological instinct. And by that, he means an instinct for the mind of God. 
the way God understands truth as God knows it, truth as God cares about it. A theological instinct in virtue of which we are able to make true judgments. Without such a theological instinct, we are little more than people with secular minds loosely clothed with a Christian profession. A genuine theological instinct, a God instinct, a mind of God instinct of the kind Paul has in view, cannot be gained apart from a constant self-offering in rational worship, which involves all the components of worship. For it is through that inner relation between prayer and the transforming renewing of our minds that we become so tuned into God that we will actually fulfill our service in the rational way that is acceptable to him. What are we saying when we say Jesus Christ is risen today? Alleluia. What are we saying? It's got to be playing out in the way that we understand our relationship with God, in the way that we live out our relationship with God. Otherwise, it's just religious platitude. Nothing more. We are to continually go to him outside the camp and abide there, knowing that here in the present form of things, there is no lasting city. We have come to and we pursue the city which God has already inaugurated in Jesus and which he's bringing to fulfillment, to fruition. Father, I know there's a lot here, but it's also very practical. And I, we, we tend to want to hide behind theological inquiry, behind doctrinal acuity, behind uh, behavioral uprightness, and not do business with the real truth of new creation the reality of a death to a way of being human and a whole new paradigm of human existence. A whole new pattern. A following after Jesus that is taking up our own cross as he died to the way of being human that all of us have known and lived, the pattern of this world, its forms, its structures, its ways of being and thinking and doing. He put all of that to death, and if we would follow him, we must own that same crucifixion of the former order. We must walk in newness of life. And this is a work in our minds. It requires thought. It requires meditation. It requires prayer. It requires study. It requires contemplation. It requires a diligent pursuit to know and be conformed to the likeness of Christ. This isn't about religion. It's not about morality. It's not about earthly success. It's not about blessing as we understand it. It's about owning and walking out the destiny that God has for us and ultimately for the whole creation. The summing up of everything in the Messiah. This is what resurrection means. Father, may we be in practice not just in theology, but in our practice, a resurrection people. For the sake of your glory in the church and in the world, we ask these things in his name. Amen.